All right, let's get started this morning. If you have your, your notes packet from our last session together, we are going to pick up there. I think it's going to be on uh, page six. We concluded our last session looking at some aspects of comparative studies in our Old Testament background. Specifically, we were looking at some of the things that John Walton had um, mentioned in his book, which I just want to highlight to you. I put it on the screen, but Ancient Near Eastern Thought in the Old Testament, um, Introducing the Conceptual World of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, if you get a chance to pick this up and read some of it at some point, I think that um, at a minimum you'll be greatly challenged. Uh, there's a lot of things in the, in the background that we just don't really understand. And we, we come into the text with our ideas from the 21st century. And we're going to talk about some of that today when we get into the, the creation stories. And so it's a, a good book for that reason. As we looked at that, we looked at some of the, the similarities and differences as we are doing comparisons between, as we'll talk about today, stories like the biblical account of creation and the Enuma Elish and other ancient Near East stories. So this morning I want to pick up, before we jump into that, we want to finish our Material, starting on page 6, with the geography of the Old Testament. The geography of the Old Testament. And um, Max Anders, what's that? Quick question. The, the clue is due in six, the first of six. Okay, six on, this uh, coming Sunday? This coming Sunday. Whatever day that is. Or this Sunday. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's two, that, no, one or two in this class. One. Two, I think, right? One. Last week plus this week. Does anybody else not have their book on that note? I know you don't. Everybody else has their book. Do you have uh, the textbook there? Oh, no, not yet. Not yet? Mm -hmm. Is it ordered? Yeah, it's ordered. Okay. So I might, need to, I might need to extend those again. Um, the, yes. <laughs> but there's, there's one every single week. So um, each week that I extend it, that's also yeah. piling them up. So I just got it yesterday. I had it on the table next to the Oh, that's extra money. Yes. Twelve dollars. Woo! Oh, two ten. All right. So yeah, I will extend. Uh, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll extend both of them for another week. But that means that next Sunday you have, you'll have three, three quizzes. Yes, yeah. all three. All right. So they should be open though. So you shouldn't have to take them all at once. So the f the third one won't open until next week. But the first two should be open. So just you should be able to go in and take them anytime. All right. You're correct. I have to open the second one tonight, this afternoon. So Max Anders uh, has a great little handy book, uh, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. I think it's, it's great for anybody, really. But if you have anybody you're trying to help understand, you know, maybe they're a high school student or a kid or something, this is a great book. Also, you know, for, for college and seminary as well. And so some of the, the maps that we're going to use in just a minute actually come from here. He had said that the primary anchor points for mastering the geography of the Bible are the bodies of water. And again, um, the slides are all made available, uh, Lord willing, as long as the technology works, uh, each week online. And so all last week's uh, lecture material, if you need to uh, review that, if you weren't here, that's all available um, on the Internet. Okay? So I want us to look at the map here that you have in your handout on page 9. It says the work map locations of the Old Testament. 
Maybe I w I'll give you a, uh, I actually have a, a printed copy of all this. So I'll give you this. And we're on that. Okay. So if you look at this map, what we want to do this morning uh, first is we want to fill in the numbers and the letters. And so the bodies of water, as Max Andrew said, if you can locate the bodies of water and then work from there, then you can get an understanding of the geography and where the events are taking place. And so looking at, I think on page 7, last class period, uh, page number 6, did we fill that in, any of it or no? No, okay, so we'll be up on page 6 then. The ancient Near East Fertile Crescent area consists of three subregions. Letter A is Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia. Which means between the two rivers. Yes, sir. So you can see on the map up here, <coughs> okay, the Mesopotamia between the two rivers. And so this is the Tigris and the Euphrates, which we'll label on the other map in a few moments. Okay, so Mesopotamia. Is that its original name, like the first known name? Because it seems to be very old, that, that that's like an original name. It is very old. Yeah, uh, I forget. Um, yeah, I, I don't actually know that. So, so that becomes Judah and Israel. Is that what's going on? Uh, well, they're going to be over here. Yeah, Mesopotamia is where uh, Babylon, Iraq, okay. Iran's a little there, then Persia's down south. So we're gonna, I'm going to cover all that in a minute when we oh. get to the other map. Oh, okay. So you, you, I'll get you the label and everything. Okay. So this is all of modern Iraq, number two here under A, um, parts of Iran, Syria, Lebanon. It's bordered on sides by the mountain ranges. Um, I'm on 1A3, bordered on sides by mountain ranges in the northeast and deserts on the southwest, okay? So on this page, if it just has a capital letter abbreviation, it's probably directions, all right? North, south, west, and east. Could so you, could you do number one again? Between Tigris and Euphrates. Okay. Number four, it's unpredictable weather causes desert and swamp conditions. It's unpredictable weather. And we're going to see that's a contrast to the Nile in Egypt in just a moment. So it's unpredictable. And number five, there's no natural defenses for them. So what I'm doing right now is I'm just giving you a little bit of information about this area, and then we will label the map specifically. So if, if you are a little confused as to what the area is, hang with me for a minute, and then we will label it. Letter B is Syria-Palestine. So right now what I'm doing is I'm, I'm lining out three major areas. So the next one is Syria-Palestine. Okay, the Syria-Palestine area, if you look on the map, it's basically like a land bridge area. It's over here. Okay, so, th so this is our area that we're going to be talking about with Canaan, Israel, the Promised Land, okay? 
So it's here. This is Syria-Palestine area. It is a strategic location. Strategic location. As you can see, it's a, it's a land bridge that brings you from Egypt over to the Mesopotamia area or vice versa. And so this is a very strategic area that has been fought over for thousands of years, likely for this reason. From Dan to Beersheba is the, the north and the south region. I actually have some of these slides on the other presentations, but this, this one will still work for it. So from Dan to Beersheba, and we'll see that again in a little bit on some of these maps, but that's basically the northernmost to the southernmost uh, area that is being referred to. When they say from Dan to Beersheba, they're basically saying the whole area of the Promised Land or the Syria-Palestinian area. While the geographic features of the Mesopotamia and Egypt allowed for national unification, this was not the case with Syria and Palestine. There were small rivers and, and vast topographical changes that divided the region. I'll show you some of that in a few minutes. And it was primarily, let it be, a land bridge, which you can see right here again, a land bridge across the Fertile Crescent. Both Mesopotamia and Egypt attempted to control this region for military and economic reasons. So you can already imagine... Okay, and plus, you already know probably a significant amount of the biblical story. So you can already understand why this is a territory that is often fought after. That pretty much every empire wants to get a hold of this because it controls what goes on between all these areas. The Mediterranean Sea provides western border. Therefore, the land of the Old Testament lies east of the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, so this is the Mediterranean right here this blue area. So we're talking about the biblical area of Cal Canaan or Palestine, the promised land. And so if the sea is to the west, then the area is to the east. So if you can locate on a map the Mediterranean Sea, you just take your finger with the Mediterranean Sea, you go just to the east of it, and boom, you're right there. And specifically, if you look for this little body of water, you're, you're dead on. The bottom one's going to be the Dead Sea. So I will, it'll look nicer than what I'm going to draw on the board right now when it's on the, the PowerPoint display here. Uh, but pretty much, this is what you need to recognize. This being the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. That is what everything centers around. So the Mediterranean would be right there. Now it's going to come off from there. That's the sand that you're going to be getting between the Euphrates and Tigris. But if you can target in your head this right here, then you'll always know what we're talking about. Canyon's going to be over here. So the top part is the Sea of Galilee. The middle is the Jordan. Yeah. And the bottom is the Dead Sea. Yeah. And we're going like, to label all that on the other map. Letter D, the Jordan Rift is a great fissure, fissure from north of the Sea of Galilee to the Jordan Valley and the Dead Sea to the shores of the Red Sea. So what we're dealing with here is when you look at the area, let's see if I can get the right picture for you here. Okay, so now we've zoomed in, okay? 
So what's this blue area? Right. Okay. So we come over here. You're going to see, you can tell by the color coding on here, that the topography is quite varied. All right. So it's going to go from the coastal plains. All right. That's going to be the plains along the coast. The central mountain range. So you can begin to see, um, you know, the, how these, um, I don't know, the squiggly lines of the mountain ranges are in there. And then the Jordan Rift Valley. Right. And then on the other side, you're again going to have mountains and it's going to taper off again. And so down here, this is a, a cool diagram that is on here. This is from um, Dr. Stevenson. He teaches um, a little bit south in Florida, and I have acquired some of his PowerPoint slides to assist us here. But you can see when you look at this of how when you come off the Mediterranean Sea, you know, you come off in your boat, you dock here, and there's a little bit of uh, mountainous terrain, right? And then you have this big drop. All right, and that's where this Rift Valley is going to run through there. And so you're going to have the water, the Jordan River, for instance, running down through there, and then it's going to come back up on the other side. So you, the topography is quite varied in this area. <coughs> in the north, there are the Lebanon and anti-Lebanon mountain ranges. I'm under letter D, Roman numeral 1. The altitude continues to descend from there, reaching 1,275 feet below sea level in the Dead Sea. And it divides the area into four vertical zones, the coastal plains, the central mountain range, the Jordan Rift, and then the Transjordanian Highlands. The only one uh, not listed right there is the Transjordanian um, Highlands. That is going to be on the other side, Transjordan, the other side of the Jordan, and that's going to be the area here once you cross over Jordan River. making water there. Then you can go up and you can look at this one here. It's working. It's trying to send the signal. another picture of it again. So when, when we talk about the Jordan River, we, we talk about this area over in uh, Palestine and, and Israel and Canaan, we often don't uh, picture uh, the variedness of the topography and the, and, uh, the, the Jordan Valley and, and the, the mountainous sides of it and, and all that. So that's what that's trying to demonstrate. So the first one was Mesopotamia. The second is Syria. And then the third one, letter C, is Egypt.
we get over to Egypt. I don't know if it's the, the Wi-Fi causing a problem. Um, is, is that the issue? Is it finicky? Yeah, so, uh, okay, so my phone's not sending it. I ordered a clicker. It'll be here for, for next week uh, to make this easier. So here you go again. So now you have all three showing up. So you got Mesopotamia, you got the area where it says the land bridge, that's our Syria-Palestinian area, and you have Egypt. So when we talk about the three main areas that we are discussing, this is what it is. So, one, two, three. Egypt has similar geographical conditions to Mesopotamia. That's number one. Similar geographic conditions to Mesopotamia. Number two, the Nile River is the dominant geographical feature. Now, here's where there's some contrast between Egypt and Mesopotamia. So you got the Nile River in Egypt, and you got the Euphrates and the Tigris in Mesopotamia. The way I remember those, by the way, is E.T. That's the movie. Euphrates is on the left, Tigris is on the right, E.T. So if something else works for you, use it. Um, the black fertile soil of the Nile River is contrasted with the lifeless red desert sands of Mesopotamia. 90% of the population lives in the Nile Valley, which was seldom more than 10 miles wide, and the Nile rose in June, peaking in September. Um, the, the deal with the Nile River is that you could count on it for good fertilization of your soil and therefore good growth. Whereas what often happened in Mesopotamia is there would be this massive flooding and it would wipe out entire cities. And the, so, so the Nile was, was more predictable in a sense, and, and Mesopotamia is more unpredictable, and your city could just be wiped out by a bunch of flooding. Number three, the Mesopotamia advanced slowly but surely. The culture, slowly but surely. Number four, Egypt advanced in leaps and bounds. Leaps and bounds. They had relative seclusion from the outside world, unlike Mesopotamia, and they maintained mostly continuous Egyptian pharaohs. So this is why I mentioned um, last class that they were kind of anti-foreigners. They were secluded, they had their own thing going on, and you know it was them, and they're the best type of thing. They hated shepherds, I'm sure. The shepherds? Yeah. Yeah. And all types of foreign stuff and people. So what I want to do now is, is to cement this more into your mind. All right, I want you to go to the map. Uh, on page 9, and we're going to label these, and it coincides with page 7. So you kind of need them both side by side. And then I will put it up on the screen as well. So we're going to label this map right there. It worked that time, I don't know. So we're going to label this map, all right? The numbers uh, refer to uh, bodies of water. And the letters are places. And just so that you have kind of a, a bearing or an understanding of what size of an area we're talking about, I have a second diagram for you uh, on your page 9 showing you the state of Texas overlaid over this area. So you can kind of see that we're talking about the same general area as the size of the state of Texas. That's, that's what this whole area is. 
all right? So here we go. Page seven, fill in the blanks, and page nine, map to coincide with it, all right? Number one, locating the primary bodies of water. Number one is the Mediterranean Sea, all right? You've already picked that up by now, probably. Mediterranean Sea is number one. All right, page seven. And the land of Canaan is to the east or west of it? East, right? Number two is the Sea of Galilee. All right? The Sea of Galilee. So that corresponds with what I drew right here. So number two is the top. That's this. All right? On the board. That's the Sea of Galilee. All right? It's a freshwater lake that's seven miles wide and 14 miles long, and it lies about 36 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. So from the time you land on the shore of the Mediterranean, about 36 miles in. Number three is the Jordan River. Number three is the Jordan River. So that corresponds on my board, the whiteboard, with the part right here. Okay? That's heading from the Sea of Galilee, dumping into the Dead Sea. It flows south out of the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River travels for 65 miles, okay, and dumps in the Dead Sea. Number four, therefore, is what? The Dead Sea, right? All right, it's shaped like a, a giant hot dog with a bite out of the lower third. That's what Max Andrews says. Um, the Dead Sea lies at the bottom of the world. It's the lowest point on land, almost 3,000 feet below sea level at its lowest point. So water flows into it, but no water flows out of it. It has a high concentration of mineral deposits and does not support normal plant or animal life, hence the name the Dead Sea. Uh, you really can't float in it. I've been to it. Uh, they sell lots and lots of uh, health and beauty products out of it, all the salts and the minerals and everything else. It's a big business, and uh, it really stinks a lot if you get it in your eyes. Doesn't kill you, but uh, it stinks a lot. Uh, number five is the Nile River. All right, so now we just jumped over to here, okay? So we're over in Egyptian territory, okay? Nile River. Perhaps the most famous in the world. It flows through the heart of Egypt, spreads out like many fingers, and empties into the waiting arms of the Mediterranean. Six and seven go together. That's why there's no description with six. Six um, is Tigris. Seven is Euphrates. If I redid his map, I would reverse those numbers so it matched the ET. <laughs> All right? So seven is Euphrates. Six is Tigris. All right? So these twin rivers flow for almost 1,000 miles each before they join the Persian Gulf, which is going to be number what? Eight. Okay, so it goes down south, heads into the Persian Gulf. So that's it, eight. Eight, eight. eight bodies of water. If you can grasp those eight bodies of water, then you'll have a pretty good understanding of what's going on. You can picture that in your head when we're talking about different areas in the Bible, when you're reading the Bible yourself or you're teaching the Bible, then that'll help you out. Now let's hit the primary land masses that we're going to deal with. Uh, the first one is... Subjective, but uh, letter A, Max Anders labels as the Garden of Eden. All right, now, of course, this is speculative, okay? It's hard to pinpoint it. Um, some argue that it's much more north, and uh, John Salhammer, in his book, Genesis Unbound, argues that actually... It's uh, pretty much synonymous with Canaan. He has some very interesting uh, arguments for that. Some of them actually make a good deal of sense. 
his, inter his interpretive scheme is not accepted by everybody, but he is a well-known scholar. He is also uh, the same guy who is the author of a book I mentioned last week called The Pentateuchus Narrative. That's what turned me on originally and got me started on the SPSU principle thing. And so that Sam and this book, Genesis Unbound, it's been around for quite some time, is, is his book on Genesis and the origins of, of man, etc., and what's really going on in the creation story. His argument is that the descriptors, you know, in Genesis they try to figure it out by, by the four rivers, right? And we might come back to this uh, in the next part of our, our time together this morning, but he argues that one of the things is that in Genesis they keep moving east. You know, they're kicked out of the garden to the east, right? Then Cain moves east. Then they, they go and build in Babel, which is east, right? So if Babel is over here, and we're moving east, that does make sense. And so anyways, he, lines up, he argues that really it's here. And the whole point in Genesis 1 is that God isn't just creating the universe, but Genesis 1 is actually about God preparing the promised land for his people. And so it's always about the promised land. So that's Selhammer's take on it. Letter B, Canaan, Israel, Palestine. This kind of small piece of land which lies between the Mediterranean coast and the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River and the Dead Sea, it changes names throughout the Old Testament. In Genesis, it's called Canaan. After the Hebrew people established themselves in the land in the book of Joshua, it becomes known as Israel. And 1,300 years later, at the beginning of the New Testament, it's called Palestine. So any of these three that, that you hear, you got to think of that area. When you get in the book of Kings, when you talk about north and south, okay, Israel and Judah, same thing. You've got to be thinking about that area right there. Letter C is a city, an important city. Anybody venture a guess? Jerusalem. Exactly. Yep, Jerusalem. All right. Located just off the northwestern shoulder of the Dead Sea, this city nestled in the central mountains of uh, Israel. It's so central to the story of the Old Testament that it must be singled out and identified. The capital of the nation of Israel. Letter D, Egypt. Egypt plays a central role. There's lots of interplay between Israel and Egypt. Moses is there. Jesus is there. And lots of people in between are there. The D is Egypt? Yes, sir. D is Egypt. The next three might be a little more difficult for you to keep straight, but it's really it's not too bad. E is Assyria. Okay, so up at the top, the Mesopotamia area is Assyria. Letter E. Letter F is Babylon. That's at the bottom. And then G is Persia. Now, if you can get the Persian Gulf, then you can then get Persia. So here's all the answers filled in for you. Now, there is one that's not on here that I'm just going to point to it and tell you where it's at. Because it does come into play a lot. Syria, or anybody know the other name for it? It's Aram. So when you see Aram in the Bible, Aram and Syria, same thing. Okay? So you're talking up here. 
So it's, it's north of Canaan, kind of in between it and Assyria. So when Paul goes to uh, the road to Damascus, for instance, that, that's where he's heading, up in that area, Aram, Syria. So just think north. Is that A-R-U-M? Uh, Aram is A-R-A-M, or Syria, S-Y-R-I-A. Is that where we get Aramaic? Aramaic should, should be uh, related to Syrian, I would think. That's like how that's classic. Yeah. Now, if you're going to put it, I would like to put it right here. Now, if we jump, you know, a couple thousand years from, from Genesis, and you look at what goes down in the divided kingdom, so you have three kings is all you have during the United Kingdom in, in Israel. You have Saul, David, and Solomon. After Solomon, he had a divided heart, led to a divided kingdom. And so then you've got 20 kings in the north, 20 kings in the south. Every king in the north is bad. Eight kings out of 20 in the south are okay or good. During that time period, until uh, the exile and then the return, you can remember this history through the following. Brief pause, God is ready. All right, now I realize I'm jumping the gun. We'll get to this probably in a, a few weeks or something. But um, these all stand for nations, all right? When Israel was taken captive, okay, in 722 B.C., it was by Assyria. The southern kingdom, Judah, they went in 586 B.C., and that was Babylon. Well, after Babylon, the next world power was Persia. That enabled the Israelites to begin returning home. Cyrus decreed that they could return. After that comes the world power of Greece. Alexander the Great and Hellenization changed, changed the whole world what Then Israel actually gets independence for about 70 years with the Maccabees, and that's all of history that takes place in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You can read those um, in the apocryphal books, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th Maccabees. The Maccabees are, are not inspired, they're not part of our canon of scripture, but the books, them and other apocryphal books, are uh, relevant and beneficial for history, especially for the intertestament time period. And then our, our last one is Rome. So a brief pause, God is ready. If you can remember that, ready for what? To send Jesus. So if you can remember that phrase, a brief pause, God is ready, that'll actually take you from the 700s all the way through the New Testament of Old Testament history. And, that, and that's what they relate to. It will also plug in with a portion of this. Okay? Obviously, we don't have uh, Rome and, and Greece labeled on here. They're going to be up over here. But the rest of these are on here. So you can see that uh, Syria was the world power. And when they were the world power, they controlled all through here. When Babylon, so now we have an extended empire. Each one is like an extended empire. So Assyria goes from here to here. Well, Babylon then goes from here to here. 
And Persia goes from here to here. All right, all of these are increasing. So then when you continue on, you get to Greece and then Rome. Well, they're from up here. And so now you've got this and this. They really are controlling the whole known world at the bottom. So, any questions on the map? We good? I use this map because I think this is a uh, simple map. I think it's got the primary places on it. We may add additional places uh, through the course of the semester that I want you to know. But these, for sure, I expect that you should know these. They'll show up on the exam. Okay? Yes, sir? D? A? The Garden of Eden? Yeah, bottom of page 7? Yeah. And again, that's a guess. Right? I mean, no one was there. But Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden, yes. Mm -hmm. Where God put Adam and Eve, yes. You're welcome. All right. Any other questions with that? I mentioned um, John Stevenson, and he has a book that deals with his background. That is. A good book. It's called Ancient History, a Framework for the Bible. So I'll utilize that to some degree. I've already told you that I utilize some of his slide materials. I try to, I don't know, provide you with resources that I think are, are beneficial and good. So that's why I bring all those extra books, which I'll refer to in a little bit probably. So... Let me put this slide up. Just a few visual things to help you understand a little bit about some of the things that came from these various places. These are just images that you would see. Obviously, with Egypt, we're, we're dealing with uh, the pyramids. And the rest of these are just different archaeological or, or um, related things that go with those countries. transition now to our next topic. The notes page for you is page 10. Okay, creation stories in the ancient Near East. Now depending upon your, your previous exposure to this, uh, this may be a lot of really new stuff that might uh, be confusing and you might have lots of questions related to it. And if that's the case, that's fine. That's, that's what we're here for. So we can have some, some discussions, some questions. Uh, I will not know the answer to everything probably. So although I am teaching the class, uh, I'm a learner just like you. So I learn new stuff every time I teach the class. I read new books all the time. I find new websites every single week. And so I'm always learning. All right. So ancient creation stories cosmologies is, is what the word is. So cosmologies, about the cosmos, the world, the universe. How, how does it get here? Uh, 
how does it fit together, who made it, what made it, etc. So we're primarily going to focus on the Enuma Elish and the Genesis account of these. So I have a couple of handouts that I'm going to give you today related to these. If you will take one and pass it back. That might be one short, actually. try to remember if you want me to to bring another copy there it's not online so I can bring you another copy next week okay thing I want to look at is a couple of examples of how the ancients viewed the world. All right. So this is one. Now there's going to be a lot of similarities between these pictures or images. And what you have here is some kind of almost glass ceiling. Okay. It's firmament, King James word. Okay. Some kind of a, a barrier through which there are windows that water, rain, comes. There's land. Underneath the land is water. And there's some kind of pillars or something that's holding the land up in place. And these mountains are also helping to hold up this ceiling that is above it. Um, way up which, so you have the gods and potential access to them. Another illustration of this is this one here. And so, again, you have this dome or the firmament, okay? You have some kind of pillars that's holding all this up. You have waters underneath, and Sheol is, is the underworld. Waters above the earth are on top of this dome. So, one of the things that is difficult for most modern change how we think when we go to read the scriptures. Because it wasn't written in the 21st century. It's, it's a very old book. And they didn't think like that. So the ideas that we have about science, about astronomy, about uh, chemistry, about atoms, and all this type of stuff, uh, that is not how they thought. And so they didn't write that way either. They didn't think that way. And so the idea that I brought to you last week about the shared pool of knowledge requires that if we're to understand what Moses is writing about, that we've got to get a little bit inside his head and see how he's thinking about what he's writing and not assign our own meanings to the words that we read. And it's a little bit of a difficult task, all right? So the ancient Hebrew conception of the universe is very similar, all right? The people lived in that time period 
again, they had the same uh, limited view uh, of science and all, you know, all the modern things that we have. And so they had a similar uh, view. Again, water's above the firmament. You can see here that there's these gaps, these windows, these holes for the rain to come through. You have the sun, the, the moon, the stars that are up there in the sky. Mountains, seas, and earth. The foundations of the heavens, you got the, it being held up. You have Sheol underneath, and the foundations, and then the great, great deep below that. They viewed the sky as a vault resting on foundations, maybe mountains, with doors and windows that led in the rain. And God dwelt above the sky, hidden in a cloud, in majesty. So all above there. The world was viewed as a, a disk, kind of, floating on water, secured or moored by these pillars that you see on the sides. And the earth was the only known domain. The realm beyond it was considered unknowable. And then Sheol, or the underworld, was a watery or a dusty prison from which no one returned. Regarded as a, a physical place beneath the earth, it could be reached only through death. So, when we read the creation story, we need to keep this in mind and see how that alters maybe what we think, etc. This is another view that you again you can see the similarity in all of these different depictions. And so again you got these pillars, you got the underworld, you got the mountain of God, which is going to be related to ziggurats, etc. that they tried to build, and the the Babylonians, the Akkadians, the Egyptians, the what became the Hebrews or the Israelites, all of them have some sense or, or a similarity in how they're viewing the world. Um, the Assyrian creation story uh, has, has been found in portions in, in different tablets. And I didn't print out my notes, uh, religious side, so I can't tell you much else on that. We're going to talk primarily about uh, the Enuma Elish. And so they found tablets. So the, the Enuma Elish is written on um, seven tablets, uh, clay, cuneiform. That's where you use like a stylus. You press it into the clay and you make these symbols. And then it hardens and becomes a tablet, a clay tablet. Uh, not quite like our tablets. Yeah. So... I'm going to use, again, some slides from uh, John Stevenson on this. This is a different tablet. We'll talk about the flood story later, maybe. It's a different set of uh, tablets and stories. But this is from Nippur that has been found. So the Enuma Elish... The words come from the very first line, which is common. This is how uh, the books of the Bible are named by the Hebrews also. They don't call it Genesis as an English word, obviously. It's in the beginning. It's the first word, Bereshit. And so they do the same thing. Enuma Elish went on high. So if you look at the... Went on high? When? 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 Uh-huh. If you look at the packet that I handed out to you, that um, is stapled. If you wanted to write where that's coming from, 
It's coming from the book called Understanding Genesis by Nahum Sarna. From, uh, I think it's 1966 or so. All right, so it's quite old, actually. Yeah, 1966 copyright. So if you're interested in it, you could probably pick it up for, I don't know, it's probably used for not too many dollars. I want to use uh, the material that he has for us to help us understand a little bit about what's going on. You can see on page five that he has a very similar diagram. But on page four is where I want you to look with me. Because he's going to give us an explanation of the Enuma Elish. Now, if you're actually interested, I thought about printing it for you, but I didn't really think that it was necessary. But you can Google Enuma Elish, and you can get the English translation of the tablets. What you'll find is there's a hundred and, I don't know, 40 or something lines. And one of the things you have to understand is that when you find tablets like this, what did I say they're made out of? They're clay. So what do you think happens over time to some of the clay tablets? They disintegrate. Yeah, they disintegrate, they get chipped, they get broken, someone dropped them, someone hit them, whatever, right? So sometimes, if you go Google this, you, you'll find there's lines where there's some missing words. Well, that's because it's broken. Like they're missing a, a chunk of, of the, the clay tablet. So they're not sure what goes there. Pretty much any kind of ancient artifact that you uh, find that's translated, you'll often find some missing uh, characters or, or words in it. But if you look on, on page four, I don't want to read the, the whole packet that I gave to you. That's why I gave it to you. But I do want us to, to look at part of it. It gives us an explanation of the Enuma Elish, of what the story is about, and for our point here, how they believe the world came about and what they believe about the gods. So if you look at um, the second paragraph under the Enuma Elish heading, it says, The Babylonian creation epic tells how, before the foundation of heaven and earth, nothing existed except water. This primal generative element was identified with Atu, the male personification of the primeval sweetwater ocean, and his female associate, Tiamat, the primordial saltwater ocean, represented as a ferocious monster. From the commingling of the two waters were born the divine offspring. These, in turn, gave birth to a second generation of gods, and the process was repeated successively. Then came a time when the young gods, through their unremitting and noisy revelry, disturbed the peace of Tiamat and Atu, and so they decided to destroy the gods. But the evil design was thwarted by the quick action of the all-wise Thiet, the earth-water god. Tiamat now planned revenge and organized her forces for the attack on the gods. The latter, for their part, requested Marduk to lead them in battle. So he acceded. Now, he was, he was like a low-level guy, God, right? He was a low-level God. So they get together and like, hey, listen, we need someone because she's going to destroy us. And so he becomes their ruler. And in exchange for him doing that, he said, okay, and then when we're done, I become king. And they're like, okay, at least we'll be alive, right? So that's what's going on here. So then it says... To this condition, the assembly of the gods readily agreed, and Marduk, invested with the insignia of royalty, thereupon became their champion and took up the cudgel against Tiamat and her helper. 
After a fierce battle in which he defeated the enemy forces and slew Tiamat, Marduk sliced the carcass of the monster in two and created of one half the firmament of heaven and of the other the foundation of the earth. So, what is the earth made out of? Of a god, right? Yes. Andy Numa Elish. So, it's the losing god sliced in half. And that's what you have as what created our universe. Makes sense. Yeah. Right? So, you have Tiamat, right? And then you have Marduk, who enters into the picture. And then later on, you have another one who enters into the picture, and his name is Kilu. So the story doesn't completely end there. It continues on, actually, with, and uh, Starnard, I don't think, uh, has the full continuation of it there. So let me... Because what happened eventually is these uh, lower-level gods were working for these other gods, and they got tired of it and complained about it, and so they made who? You. They made people to do the work for them, to be their servants. Now, the this, this story doesn't completely end there either, because then later on, uh, the people are noisy, and so then they want to get rid of them. So the flood went out the flood, yeah, but so then you got the flood coming there. So Sarnet gives you three, four, five pages worth of explanation about this Enuma Elish in this creation story. And so in the Enuma Elish, if you look on page seven, so just a few things, I'm, I'm going to skip around and just highlight a few different things for you. This was their creation story, and they celebrated this by, at their, their festivals each year, they would um, present this. So you'll see that in page 7, the function of Enuma Elish, in that middle of that paragraph there. In the next paragraph, he says, the epic performed several functions. First, it was Theogenes. Okay? It described how the generation of the gods, whose names were so familiar to the people of Mesopotamia, came into being. So that word there, it simply means how the gods got here. Right? I'm on the second paragraph under the function of the new Elish. Second, it was cosmological. That tells how the world got here. So how the gods got here, how the world got here. And it gave answers to human speculation about the origin of things. Further down, the very last sentence on that page. It says it serves to validate Marduk's assumption of the divine government of the universe by explaining his ascendancy from relative obscurity. So why is Marduk the king god? Well, now you know, because Enuma Elish explains it to you. Finally, next paragraph, and not least important, was the cultic functional aspect of Enuma Elish. The conflict between Tiamat and Marduk was expressive of the war between the forces of the cosmic order and the forces of chaos. So, 
there, uh, Sarna, as, as uh, does John Walton in his Ancient Near East Thought and Old Testament, as does John Davis in Paradise to Prison, uh, and elsewhere, anybody who deals with the New Middle East, then they, they look at the Genesis story, and we begin to see how the two are related or uh, compared. So, some similarities and differences with the creation account. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And then we, we have the six days of creation. Some similarities is the world's without form and void. Similar order and events, seven tablets and seven days of creation. The differences are big, right? Remember, the difference makes all the difference. So the differences are there's polytheism versus monotheism, and there's confusion of spirit and matter. Now, this is from, from Johnson. The second handout that I gave you, just a, a one-pager, and that is from John Davis's book, Paradise to Prison. I think I tried to put it at the bottom, but I don't think my copier fully got it on there. So, Paradise to Prison by John Davis. And he lists for you a very nice summary form of the differences and similarities, much more than what's on the screen up here. why I gave it to you. And with his, if you look at that for just a moment with me, he gives you not only the similarities and comparisons, but he gives you the reference in the Enuma Elish tablets. Okay? The, the first number, the Roman numeral, is the tablet. Which tablet number is it? Like, in the, the top of the page where he says similarities, on the left side, so under Enuma Elish, it says Roman numeral 1, colon, 1 to 10. Well, just like you do chapter and verse, it's it's not chapter, it's tablet. So, tablet 1, verse 1 to 10. And then on the right side, he shows you the verses in Genesis that is similar to. Then the bottom part, he shows the differences. So, this is, this is a, a, a better chart and more thorough than just what's on the screen. That's just a summation on the screen, okay? The, the one on the page from John Davis is uh, much more thorough. Numa Elish, Tiamat engulfs the world in, in primal chaos. In Genesis, the world was unformed and unfilled. Now, that whole phrase, tohu wabohu, in, in, in Greek, I mean Hebrew, sorry, um, is a phrase that also has a lot of debate surrounding it. So I'm going to leave that for just a moment and just, just leave it up there. But So in Numa Elish, the light comes from the gods. In Genesis account, God brings light into existence. Um, in New Elisha, Marduk makes the stars of the zodiac and ordains the year. In Genesis, God sets the sun, moon, stars for signs. In New Elisha, Marduk makes man from the blood of Kenu. And Genesis, God creates man in his own image and likeness, and he makes him from what? Yeah. The, the earth, right? In, in, in the Bible, yeah. Okay? So, Moses. Now, here, here's one of the things that is difficult for us uh, to grasp sometimes. So, what is the contextual setting of Genesis? Genesis and Deuteronomy, written by who? Moses, right? Around when? Right. Around the time of the Exodus, right? So, this is a group of people that have just been freed from Egypt. 
and are, are being freed from Egypt to become servants, okay, or slaves if you want to use that word even, of who? The one true God, the creator God. So they've been for 400 years in this culture and in this system of Egyptian gods and Egyptian culture, and now they're being removed from that. And one of the things that we need to understand is that many of the things in in the, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five of, of the Bible, are refuting current cultural practices and ideas. And, and what, um, what he's saying right here is exactly that. He's saying Moses is giving us a refutation of the accepted mythos that was held in antiquity as he goes point by point to show that God is the true creator of heaven and earth. I'm also going to argue to you that in the plagues, the ten plagues, are also a point-by-point point knock on the gods of Egypt. Yep. Okay? Keep them all down. Exactly. So when you're reading these, these stories, these biblical stories, and if you don't have that frame of reference, you're missing actually what's going on. You're missing the point of why they're even in there for, for those people. you got to remember, the Bible wasn't written to you. It's for you. But it wasn't written to you. That's you. It was originally to who? People that God was taking out of Egypt to become his people under his reign and rule. And this was for them and their understanding. If, if this happened in the 21st century, it would be totally different. It wouldn't be written like this. So, yes, the Bible is all for you. And it's all inspired scripture. But as Paul says in 2 Timothy, it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, training, righteousness, right? But it wasn't written to you. It was written to somebody else. So understanding that should help a, a little bit as we go through it. The Atrahasis epic is a Mesopotamian myth containing creation and flood stories. So if you want to jot a couple of notes on page 10 of your notes, you, you can. It's just a, a blank spot there for you where it says Atrahasis epic. Um, this has both creation and flood stories in it, and it's from Mesopotamia. The oldest copy dates all the way to the age of Hammurabi. If you read some scholars, you may sometimes see Hammurabi with a P. Um, I've read some scholars um, in the field who, who say it's not a B, it's a P. But either way, it's, it's referring to the same person. Who is this? <coughs> Hammurabi... Uh, put together or collected uh, some of the earliest law codes that we have. And so if you study the Ten Commandments, for instance, and Moses' laws, and you want to know about culture and context and laws and all that, this guy will come up. So my background was in criminal justice, and so when I started studying the Bible, and I don't know if I was trying to do a paper or what I was, it was probably a paper or something. This was one of my first experiences or exposures that I can remember to how do I connect with the ancient Near East culture? Because as a new Christian, I'm reading the Bible and I'm reading these Ten Commandments, and then I'm suddenly reading these books that say, yeah, things just like this were said a long time ago by Hammurabi. And so I'm like, well, wait a minute. Well, then what's Moses doing? Like, what's going on here? And so it's the same thing. If this is your first exposure, you're like, well, wait, what do you mean there's other creation stories? What, what do you mean that this isn't the first time this has been said? How do these fit together? Just remember this. The difference makes all the difference. There can be similarities. Okay? 
we live in a, a 21st century, you know, American culture. We use a lot of the same words, phrases. Uh, we wear a lot of the same clothes, etc., as the rest of the culture. But the difference makes the difference. So hopefully, when we're following Jesus, we don't say all the same words. We don't wear all the same clothes. I'm just using those as examples, right? So, I mean, we have some additional things that are different because we follow Jesus. And it's the same type of thing. So our oldest copy dates back to him. Robbie, the junior gods, begin to complain because their toil is too heavy. So the man is created to take up the slack. <clears throat> I might have just put together the new Alicia in that one. I was talking about that before. Man makes too much noise, and then the flood comes. Wise king Atrahasis is warned so he can build an ark and escape. So it's named after Atrahasis. He's, he's the king. All right. So Enuma Elish and Atrahasis are, are two of these. Atrahasis is the one. Um, Mesopotamia. Since you said it, I think that's one of those movies that I was wanting to see at Redbox, you know? I didn't want to watch it tonight. Like the Exodus or whatever? Yeah. All right, you watched it last night? Yeah. All right. Might have seen it. Next time, I think I'll go watch that one. Yeah. All right, so when we move to, to the book of Genesis, we move to the Bible, all right, we are going to encounter some similarities and obviously some differences, right? So... Genesis is divided up into two primary sections, the first 11 chapters and then 12 and 50. Um, and basically, creation, fall, flood, Babel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. This is, you know, OT survey one stuff and where the focus is. From 12 on, it begins to focus on, on Abraham and what God is doing uh, with him. And you can see there's, there's a big time gap in what is covered also. But as we move through this, okay, we get to Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so this verse alone, um, I, I really, I don't even probably want to know how many volumes, how many books, how much ink has been spilled explaining this verse. <laughs> Last week alone, I read another 100 pages. I was, I was reading Salhammer's book, Genesis Unbound. And pretty much, someone who doesn't understand any of this or has never heard of anything that we're talking about picked up Sal Hammer's book, Genesis Unbound, they would say he's a heretic. Now, he's not a heretic. He's actually taught at uh, all sorts of seminaries, including uh, Southern Baptist schools. So, he's actually a, an eminent scholar. And what happens is that people like him or John Wallen, who wrote The Lost World of Genesis 1, which if you're not familiar with any of this, and you pick this up, you probably think he's a heretic too. Uh, or um, who else? Uh, Heiser, Dr. Mike Heiser. He has stuff on all this as well. Here's what happens. These people study the text, and then they study all of these cultures. And they're looking to see what the relationship is, what the difference is. And what they want to know is what the Bible is actually saying. So if you listen to uh, Dr. Walton or, or Heiser, what they'll tell you is 
No, I believe in the Bible. It's inerrant, inspired, it comes from God. I believe in creation account in the Bible, but you're not reading it right. That's pretty much what they would say. And so we will not have time. Okay, we could literally spend the next three hours on that one verse, and we don't have time to do this. So this course, I hope, is going to provide all sorts of questions, maybe more questions than answers. So there should be no shortage of ideas for research papers. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let me just give you, without telling you his entire explanation, he has an entire chapter, Stellhammer does, just on the word beginning, in the beginning, of what that's referring to. Um, is it referring to the seven days? Is it referring to uh, the time period right before the seven days? Is it returning, referring to just some um, undisclosed amount of time prior to the seven days? And Stalhammer argues that that is what it's referring to, and he backs that up with evidences throughout Scripture, including in the Book of Kings, where the, the same word is used as a indiscriminate amount of time prior to the counting of the years that the king actually ruled and reigned. So in other words, it might say, King so-and-so um, reigned for 10 years, but that's not exactly accurate because he was actually ruling before that. And you say, well, what do you mean? Are you saying there's contradictions or it's not accurate? No, I'm not saying either one of those things. I'm saying that we, we miss what they're trying to get at because we're looking for something different. Just like, I believe God created in seven days, but I don't think that Genesis was written as a scientific argument for creation. That's just not what they were doing. It was written to refute the polytheistic views of the time period and to say that God is the creator God. So that's what, that's what we're talking about. That's what's going on here. It continues, it says, The earth was unformed and unfilled. That's that tohu wabohu. And the darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So this is very common. If you've never seen this before, this is a very common layout of the days of creation. So, uh, just a minute. So isn't the word bohu normally translated chaos? Tohu wa bohu? Yes. Yeah. And so that's what's meant to be um, the, what's it called, the, the atmosphere. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so is, is it chaos or is it unfilled? I think unfilled is closer. I think it's more about uninhabited. So Stalhammer will argue in his book, um, The Genesis Unbound One, and so will, let me see if I can say this guy's name right, David Shimura, who has a book called Creation and Destruction. He has an entire chapter um, what is this? 26 pages. This is 26 pages of his chapter on Tohu Wabohu. So, in this 26 pages, he goes through. Oh, I might be able to hook you up. He goes through and deals with the etymology. He deals with ancient Near Eastern cultures and other texts. Mm -hmm. He deals with the Arabic, the Akkadian, the Phoenician, the Egyptian, the Hebrew. The morphological correspondence, I'm just reading you headings here, obviously. The semantic investigations, um, and obviously you have to trust his interpretations on, you know, right. you don't know, I don't know Akkadian, Phoenician, Egyptian, you know. So, uh, that's just the first half. Are these primary sources or are these uh, secondary sources? 
the word baptism that I mentioned last class series, that's a transliteration. It's not a translation. And it's pretty hard to get rid of it because it's so ingrained in our, our culture. It's kind of like the idea, although Eugene Peterson did make a movement in this direction, it's kind of like the idea of getting rid of your birth number. Um, it's like, well, what do you mean? I, I was in plenty of places. We're so used to studying for, for the purpose of preaching and teaching that we don't like read the text. So Eugene Peterson, when he did the message series, uh, it didn't have verses. Now, eventually, again, the backlash. Yeah, but I don't know where I'm at. So, you know, they added them in. You can get it either way, I think. Uh, the story curriculum, which is NIV-based from Zondervan, it's a church curriculum that we're actually going through right now, takes you through the story of uh, the Bible in, in 31 units, and they package, I don't want to completely call it a Bible, portions of the Bible, um, and there's no verse numbers in there. Uh, the ESV is now doing these, um, I don't know if reader's edition is the, the one or not, but literally they got them in six different volumes, and it's for your reading pleasure. Like that, That's the whole point behind it. They want it to be a good book that you would want to open up and read, just like you would any good book, um, without all the things that are in study Bibles, for instance. I mean, all the, it's the opposite extreme of a study Bible, okay? So if you like the ESV study Bible with the, with the Boku of, of, of notes and intros and all that, it's the opposite of that. So, <coughs> anyway, I'm not sure what just led me down that tangent. Unformed and unfilled. If you haven't seen this before, this is very, very common. First three days, uh, second three days. The, the second grouping of three uh, puts the information or fills it. Walton would argue it's functions and functionaries. And there actually is a difference. It's the same grouping, but the point behind what he says is quite a bit different. So, Genesis 1, light and darkness are made by God on day one. Now look at the Israelite experience, okay? This is what I like about what Stevenson has here. They had seen God bring light and darkness over Egypt. Genesis 1, a division of the waters on day 2. They'd pass through the Red Sea. Genesis 1, the sun and the moon and stars, day 4. Israelite experience, Egyptians worshipped sun, moon, and the stars and had seen the sun darken in Egypt. What is Stevenson trying to say? He's saying if you look at this and you're reading the creation story, we need to stop just reading it as our 21st century American eyes and go back to what's going on. They're coming out of Egypt. They've seen the ten plagues. They've seen darkness and light. Remember when it was light in Goshen and darkness everywhere else in the land? They understand that. They've seen this. And so the, the polemic here, the argument is, listen, you've been set free by the God that created. The God that created the light. The one that turned Egypt into darkness and gave you Israelites in the city of Goshen, light. You've been set free by this one, the one who controls. The Egyptians, they worship the sun, moon, and the stars. But don't do that because they're just created things made by the same God who made you. That's the, that's the point behind it. Man has created the image of God. Only the Pharaoh was thought to be an image of God. No! Everybody has the same level of respect and dignity. Not a pharaoh, not a king, not a president. Everybody's made in the image of God. Why? Stevenson's rule and reign. You want my summary on what image of God is? It's about ruling. You go back and look at Genesis 1. God lands man. What's the land set up for? For the man to rule. 
Why is the man ruling? Because he's in the image of God. Nobody else is ruling. The man's ruling. And if you look at the text, it's connected to the image of God. Man is told to rule over the earth. Only the Pharaoh had that. Man's placed in the beautiful garden. Israelites are tempted to return to the meats of Egypt, but Canaan is the new promised Eden. So God is creating all of this for man. The two different accounts. Now, in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, some people think that they're, they're successive. One comes after the other. Some people think Genesis 2 goes back and reiterates in further detail. Some people think Genesis 2 is uh, day 6, further explains. And then if you read any of these guys that I mentioned earlier, you'll get more views. Um, here's what Stevenson says. He says, The heavens and the earth are created in six days, and Genesis 2 is the creation of the man and the woman with no time element mentioned. Okay, we have, we have a slightly different focus going on here. Man in his cosmic setting, man as central to God's purpose, the panorama of creation as a whole, details focus on one aspect of creation and centers on God creating the heavens and the earth, centers on man as the crowning act of God's creation. So, in Genesis 1, you've got, this is the greatness and the glory of God, who you're going to serve. In Genesis 2, now you've got this greatness and and glory, if you will, of the man, God's crowning creation, and how he's supposed to rule everything else as he is submitted to God, the creator. This is my, well, I didn't create this, um, but this is the visual I use when, when I teach this. Uh, I always, I like to do it in, in color. Usually I do this on the whiteboard, etc. But I found this already done for me, and it looks better than my drawing. <coughs> so this, um, I think this is from uh, Visual Me. There's some really cool graphics um, online that people have made. So the dividing, okay? And then, so this is the, the forming and filling part, or the function and the functionaries, if you go with Walton. But so you've got light and dark, night and day. And then what? Sun, moon, and stars, they go in their proper places that correspond with this. So if you ever had a hard time remembering the seven days of creation, which I always did until I learned this, you only really have to learn three. Because the other three plug into the first three. So you've got the sky and the water, and what do you have over here in day five? Well, the birds are in the sky and the, the fish are in the water. And then here, the waters below were separated out so that you have land, and he put some, some vegetation on, on the land. So what's he put over here? Well, on the land he puts the, the animals and, and the people that he made that land for. And then he rested. Now, that's a whole other talk. But the creation aspect of the first six days is completed. He's not tired. He's really not stopping, like, just ruling and working and whatever else. Walton would argue that resting in the ancient East is, is, is related to the reigning. So Walton argues that what's going on here is that God has created this land. It's now habitable. Okay, going with Salhammer on that, right? So it was uninhabitable. Now it's habitable. He's created this whole thing for man. And what's the culmination? Yeah, man's in the garden. Man's got this woman. But what's the crown of that? God is going to come be with him. And Walton argues that in the, in, in the ancient Near East, this idea of rest is, is getting ready for the ruler to come be with him. And it's 
template than creator. Think about the uh, Egyptian kings when they tried to play for their quote pharaoh god, right? They wept, right? And so the the temple slate. If this if you never heard this before either, this is very common in scholarly literature that the Garden of Eden is set up like a temple, which then transfers to the tabernacle. If you are not familiar with that theme, let me quickly just show you a little bit of how the temple imagery goes through scripture. So this ark is is my view of, of uh, the whole Bible. So from, from Genesis to Revelation, right? Jesus in the middle, right? So in the garden, you, you've got man with God, right? And so in a sense, that is the temple if you follow this imagery through, through the scripture. Then about Exodus, the end of Exodus, they build the tabernacle, okay? Because what happened in between? They were kicked out of the garden, right? They're out, gone. What is God's plan from the, from the get-go is to reconnect, to rejoin that, to be back with his crowning creation that he had made. So Exodus, the tabernacle is made. The book of Leviticus follows right after that, which fits in with what I'm saying with this idea of rest. Leviticus is all about the worship preparation because he's coming to dwell with them. God is. Why? Because they just finished making the tabernacle. What's the point of the tabernacle? It's a meeting place. A meeting place for who? God and man. So the tabernacle is made. The tabernacle is finished. They're going to come meet with God. And so because God is going to show up, what do you tell Moses? Take off your sandals. You're going to pull the ground, right? There's a little bit different thing going on when God's going to show up at your place. And so that's what Leviticus is about. How do we live and, and worship with God in our midst? Kind of almost the Genesis thing, Garden of Eden. So you continue on with the story. They have the tabernacle. They move it wherever they go, okay? So eventually Solomon builds the, the temple, right? Now we have a, a permanent place. So now God dwells there. This is why the idea of the temple being destroyed is so bad, destructive on so many levels. For the temple to be destroyed means who is no longer present with us? God. God okay? It's not about the brick and mortar. If you don't have God, you've got nothing, right? So you got Solomon's temple. Okay? Well, Solomon's temple gets destroyed, right? So that's gone. Then it gets rebuilt. Okay? Then it gets rebuilt even more, grander, bigger. Okay? So the time of Herod, actually, um, Herod was still working and building on it. In fact, it was kind of still being worked on up till the time the Romans destroyed it in 70 AD. So all through here, this continues through here. Okay? So Jesus comes. we got a change going on here. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, right? And then what did it do? The Word came and what, what's the next word? He, he dwelt, he tabernacled with the Word. So suddenly Jesus comes. So Jesus is the tabernacle temple of God. We're back to God coming and dwelling with mankind. Right? The irony is, he goes to the temple, which is supposed to be the meeting place of God and man, right? And he's what? Rejected. All right? And then he drives them out, right? So that happens. Okay, 70 AD, so it is over on this side here, so you could do this over. Okay, 70 AD, the Romans destroy it. Okay, it's never been rebuilt. There's an Islamic mosque on the site. Yep. Right? Now, they have plans to rebuild it. Then what happens? The day of Pente Pentecost, 50 days after, right? 
Holy Spirit comes. <clears throat> Literally, the Apostle Paul tells in, in his epistles, he says that you are now the word of God, the temple of God, right? So now, Holy Spirit inside, you're the temple. We get to Revelation. There's a portion where there's the, the Jews and their temple and stuff, and but then at the end of Revelation, what do we find? There is no temple. Guess what? Who's there? Yeah, because God is there. The Lord God is there. So you look at the, at this, and you see. Now this is called biblical theology, by the way. So you, you take an idea or a topic or theme or whatever, and you're tracing it from Genesis to Revelation. And so when I when I first saw this and began to see this unfolding, it blew my mind. So the idea of temple all through Scripture. The difference between biblical theology and systematic theology is a systematic theology would take every place where it talks about temple and just organize it all together. Biblical theology is tracing it from Genesis to Revelation to see what we're learning about it. Like there, there's a plan and a path in this process that's going on here. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's what God's doing. So back to creation. There's all sorts of theories of creation. Right, and we're not going to get into all the all the different theories today. But there's supernatural versus evolutionary. There's superficial appearance of history. There's the gap theory, the day age, etc. If if you don't know what these are, don't worry about it. Okay, if you are interested, you can research it and do a paper on it. If you're not, you'll learn about it over time. Uh, Keller, if you know who Tim Keller is, he says I personally take the view that Genesis one and two relate to each other the way that Judges four and five and Exodus fourteen and fifteen do. Now watch this. In each couplet, one chapter describes a historical event, and the other is a song or a poem about the theological meaning of the event. When reading Judges 4, it's obvious that it is a sober recounting of what happened in the battle. But when we read Judges 5, Deborah's song, that's poetic and metaphorical. So now we're talking about genre, right? Different genres, different purpose, okay? So watch where he goes with this. So when Deborah sings that the stars in the heavens came down to fight for the Israelites, we understand that she means that metaphorically. I think Genesis 1 has the same earmarks of poetry and is therefore a song about the wonder and meaning of God's creation. Genesis 2 is an account of how it happened from reason to God. No, I don't agree with him. But I'm simply putting this up here for you to understand what some people say about how these relate. So genre is important. If you take Genesis 1 as poetry, you don't read it the same way as if it's prose or narrative. Okay? Two different things. Stalhammer would argue, okay, that there's no way Genesis 1 is poetry because it's Hebrew narrative structure. Like, what do you mean by that? What I mean is, remember last week, probably in this class, I, I mentioned the, the wow or the vow. It's the little uh, mark that means and. It can Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. Did I mention that? Okay? That's what I mean. It's a narrative flow structure that the, the Hebrew uses different verbs and different connections if it's narrative versus poetry. Are you tracking with me on that? Yeah? So there's a difference in the text. This is some of the benefit of studying Hebrew, or at least reading people that study Hebrew, right? So Stalhammer can tell you that because he reads the text. Well, unfortunately, he's not the only one that reads the text, and uh, others don't always come to the same conclusion. So then it gets a little muddy for you. Like Francis Scott. Yeah. So Bruce Waldke, for instance, 
Uh, he reads the text also. He's a Hebrew scholar. Um, in fact, I, I love Waltke's work. I have that commentary. He's got a great theology of the, of the Bible. Um, he's great. But he says this, general revelation in creation as well as the special revelation in scripture is also the voice of God. We live in a universe and all truth speaks as one. Now what in the world are we talking about? Well, if you read the rest of it and if you know anything about what happened to him at the seminar he was teaching at, what that leads him to say is, well, we need to be open to what the scientists say. And, and we do. I mean, we do. As long as they don't contradict the scripture. But then the question becomes, are you sure you're reading the scripture properly, right? So, anyways, so he's open to aspects of evolution and whatnot, which is what led to him being, well, I guess he resigned. Um, and then he was picked up quickly at another seminary. So, my point there is, Stellium was not the only Hebrew scholar. Waltke's a Hebrew scholar. Waltke is the one that uh, did the translation work for the book of Proverbs on the NIV. He wrote the two-volume commentary on the New International Commentary on the Old Testament series um, on Proverbs. He spent literally, probably, I don't know, 20 years studying Proverbs in the Hebrew text. He knows Hebrew. He's written a grammar on Hebrew. All right? So, grammar alone doesn't answer all the questions. There's also other aspects that come into play. So, creation's complete. Man's created. The trees in the, in the garden, they're all given their names. Now, the idea of giving things names, okay, that demonstrates rulership and authority, okay? We don't think of this as much in our culture. Our parents do still usually name their kids, right? Uh, I mean, the reason they name them is because it's their kid, right? So when you're given a name in Scripture, think about all the times that people's names change. Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, right? Um, Jacob to Israel. God is changing these names because he's the authority, and he can communicate this and bring something new to these people. So naming has to do with authority. Who names all the animals in uh, Genesis? Right, Adam does, right? Because who is the ruling authority on the ground? It's Adam. All right? All right, we're going to skip... Um, we're going to skip these, these parts here of, uh, of these slides. So, now we, we go to uh, the Gilgamesh epic. Okay? And the Gilgamesh epic is another ancient creation and flood story. In the Gilgamesh epic, Anu creates Enkidu, the wild man of the forest. Enkidu is naked in the forest. Enkidu is tempted by the prostitute. Enkidu falls uh, to her charms, loses strength, but then gains, not, gains knowledge. In the Bible, what do we have? God creates Adam and puts him in the garden. Adam and Eve are naked in the garden. Adam is given the forbidden fruit by Eve. And Adam sins, his eyes are opened, and he is removed from the garden. So, what, what are some similarities? Uh-huh. In both cases, they fall, right? In, in both cases, there is uh, a creative aspect, right? One is put in the forest. One is put in the Garden of Eden. In both cases, uh, they're naked here. In both cases, there is uh, a woman involved, right? Right, but this, this is not the main character. 
Gilgamesh. Pretty much everything, all these stories are older than the biblical accounts. Um, so Enkidu and Gilgamesh become friends. Enkidu dies, and Gilgamesh goes on a quest to find a way to bring him back to life. Gilgamesh is given a plant that will let him live forever. A serpent comes and eats the plant. So much for living forever, right? What we have in scripture is that man is assigned the task in the garden of guarding and keeping, another debated phrase, and told not to eat the fruit, which then he, of course, eats, as as we already know. The Lord God commanded the man, from any tree of the garden you can eat, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat you will surely die. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 Surely die. Another phrase you want to stay with. So, the way this is organized on the screen is called a chiasm or a chiastic structure. It's a a parallelism of thought. If you haven't heard of this before, um, I talk about it in my OT class. But it's basically the idea that uh, the Hebrews did not have uh, highlighting and bold and exclamation points, and so they thought in not rhyme but parallel thought, and they would structure their accounts like this. In fact, a lot of the Old Testament, some would argue almost all of it, is structured this way. And you can see that there is some parallelism between the top and the bottom pieces. Now they don't have to be exactly the same. There's just some connecting thought that makes them parallel. All right, and so. And, and, and this arrangement of the chiastic structure, um, eating of that tree, is the, is, is the middle point. Now, the middle point doesn't have to be the main point, but it is a turning point. The, um, a larger chiastic structure that I have looked at for Genesis shows that if you expand this a little larger, the judgment of God becomes a major fulcrum in there, uh, which... Another debated phrase, the whole God walking in the cool of the day thing. It's the same phrase that's used later on in the Bible for a whirlwind tornado showing up. And so it is argued by some that um, it's not so much God walking in the cool of the day, like kick on that tree and kick you, or that in the news, uh, but that they actually heard the whirlwind tornado of the judgment of God showing up. Um, and that's why they ran away. That's how it's used later in the Bible. So, messes a little bit with what your view is, right? So every time I, I learned that and I went and looked through the text, and yep, that is how it's used there. And so then I'm like, okay, so everyone always talks about, you know, this walking with God and the cool of the day thing. And I'm like, so that's not really what it was? So you have to realize how many of these things that we have just grown up with or, or been taught, and they're unquestioned. You know, we never look at them. And I don't know. I don't know what your take on things are, but here's what mine is. I want the truth, no matter yeah. what. Yeah. That's what I want. I want the truth, no matter what. Yeah. And I am confident enough in the scriptures that, um, I mean, you could throw me off course, but I come back to Jesus. You know, and, and we're we're blessed because we're we're after the cross, if you will. Because um, I go back to, well, Jesus really exists, died, buried, resurrect. And so anytime I have doubts, which I do, if you're going to study, you're going to have doubts. Mm-hmm. 
and you're like, what's going on? I don't understand what's going on here. Um, is, is, is God not for real? So when you have doubts, which, you know, Job has tons of doubts. We'll talk about that in my next class. But he comes back to Jesus. You know? And if, if Jesus says that from Abel to Zechariah, that is scripture, I'm like, well, then that's scripture. Because he rose from the dead, and he's God. And I've already accepted that. See, that, this is why the biggest question in the world is, who's Jesus? Once you accept Jesus as God, and then Jesus makes these comments and these claims about Scripture, and Jesus says that Jonah's real, and Jesus says all these things, okay, it might sound crazy, but Jesus said Jonah's real, and Jesus came from heaven to earth. So Jesus is God. He knows. So that settles it. Now, you can still try to figure it out, like, what's going on? How's all this work? I'm not saying don't do any of that. I'm just, you know, I'm saying... That's it right there, man. When I got saved, I was a freshman in college, and my brother, uh, agnostic, agnostic evolutionist, still is. Um, first thing I did was start reading stuff about creation and kind of argue with him. Every, every vacation, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, we'd be up, my mom wouldn't sleep, we'd be arguing until 2, 3 in the morning. And one year, um, probably God directed me to this question. I finally said, Said Dave, I said if you had um, DNA of Jesus, like don't argue the point. Just if, if you had conclusive evidence, I said, would you believe in them? And he paused for a minute, and then he says, I don't know. And it's like the light bulb went on for me right there. It was like, Kevin, why are you arguing with this guy? All the evidences in the world is not going to convince him. It's a belief issue. Yeah. He is rejecting the belief, and that is what it is. So I don't really argue with him. I mean, we've had arguments then and about that stuff too. But, um, you know, he is, he is a mess. He's six years older than me. You can pray for him if you need Dave. He's actually, he'll be, um, he's in Florida right now visiting. He'll be back with us uh, Friday night through Sunday morning. He'll take off Sunday morning. Um, but just mentally, physically, and spiritually, he is in a complete mess. So, he needs Jesus. Um, <laughs> that's the summation, right? He needs Jesus. Um, okay, so we are almost time to pretty much be wrapping this up. Let me... Let me just hit a couple more of these. This is uh, just some scripture text here. Obviously, um, the woman eats, and she gave some to her husband. You know, a lot of people always think, you know, just eat and whatnot. I'm like, well, where was it? Where was the man? Uh, read the text. He was right there beside her watching this whole thing go down. What was she supposed to be doing? Ruling. Why are you not ruling? Take care of the place. So uh, he is responsible. Uh, the result of that. You can look at that in the scriptures, but I mean, most of you, you know them. There is an interesting thing when I was rereading this. I, I want to make a comment on this before we, we leave today, look on the screen. But um, I was rereading this the other day for our, our story curriculum for church. You go back and look. It's interesting to me to notice what is cursed with the word cursed and what is not cursed in that judgment scene. We see the ground is cursed. We see the serpent is cursed. Now, I didn't check the Hebrew yet. I was just reading out the NIV, but you know what I didn't see the word cursed? For the man or the woman. They had consequences. But the word cursed was on the serpent and the ground. I just, I, I found that interesting. But they never see 
So don't, um, I mean, don't ever think that you've got, if you think you've got it and there's nothing new to learn, we're done. Like I've read Genesis, I don't know how many dozens of times, you know, um, and God just showed me that. So when I get time, I'm going to have to further investigate it. In Genesis, though, before we go, I want to I wanna talk about this for a minute. This is crucial. Genesis 3.15, um, part of the judgment, and also the, the, the promise, okay? Most evangelical Christians think that it's called the Proto-Evangelion. It means first gospel, Genesis 3.15. Um, now, some argue it's not really in there, and there is, you know, some validity to depending on how you're interpreting Scripture. If you're looking through a Christocentric lens, okay, Christocentric lens, versus if you're just looking at, did they really understand that when Moses was writing that? as pointing to Jesus, but we have the benefit of having the rest of the scripture, and just like when you look at this biblical theology of the temple, you look at the idea of the seed in scripture, and you can see this unfolding throughout the scripture, so the promise was that the the serpent would be crushed, and the seed of the woman would be bruised, and what you see is that the woman begins giving birth, you know, and, and there's Cain and there's Abel, and you know that one kills the other, right? Cain kills Abel, and what we begin to see is that, yes, they're coming physically and biologically through the woman, but they're not all the seed of the woman. And this is interesting, and it also connects with what you find Jesus confronting the Pharisees with when they were so sure that they were from Abraham, and God says, you're not from Abraham. Okay? Jesus says it, right? But he's God, right? So, And Paul, the same thing. When he's saying that, are you spiritually of faith? Not everyone that's of Israel is really of Israel. What's he talking about? He's talking about this. Just because you came through Eve doesn't make you the seed of the woman. You're really the seed of the serpent. And that's what is going on with Cain, with Lamech, and it continues on. In my opinion, this is part of what's going on in Genesis 6. It's a whole other mystery, the first four verses, right? So, you continue, and you have the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. If you look in Scripture, you will see this war going on between these these groups of people in the storyline as it plays out. One of the arguments, Salhammer argues this, is that in Genesis 6, that uh, it's the seed issue going on. The, the seed of Seth versus the others. So, you're a Nephilim guy. I'm looking forward to your paper. <laughs> Make sure you answer why there's Nephilim before and after. I know. The flood. I know. All right. That, that is always going to be. So, um, I think that's going to conclude our, our time for today. The, the creation stories are somewhat of a complex issue for us, especially if it's the first time you're hearing about it. And don't be overwhelmed by it. Read through the article. We read a little bit of, of Sarna's stuff, but you have a few more pages you can read. And the bottom line for our course and for like your exam and whatnot, the bottom line is you understand the basics, all right? What the enumerators is and a little bit of how it's different from the biblical creation account in the Bible is not about splitting gods in half and creating the universe. It's about a single God who rules the universe 
and now you create and you can speak and things can happen. And that's demonstrated not only in Genesis, but if you understand that parallel with the Exodus event, then you see that happening there as well. So if that makes sense for you. Um, any any questions? Nope. We're good. Are you all with me? Am I flying over your head? Um, the, those slides are online? They will be. So what will happen here is, well, actually, no, it will stop right there. So whatever comes on the screen is what gets put on.